Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have given us your word. Lord, moreover, we're thankful that we can see clearly that you are faithful when we are faithless. Lord, I ask that we would all see your son this morning in the text. Lord, that more than just see him, we would desire him. Lord, that we would want to give more of our lives to him, to worship him. Lord, would Christ be glorified. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We'll start by reading verses 1 through 4 from chapter 37 of Genesis. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he had made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. So in the first four verses, the scene is set. We're introduced to who Joseph was. Now we read of his birth earlier on. We read of Jacob Jacob going before his brother Esau and Joseph being in the lineup. But now we're getting to know a little bit about who Joseph was and what he was known for. And as I studied this text, I found that it it was full of interpretive challenges. Which way do we go? How do we understand what's happening here? And I think we have to look closely at the words that Moses uses. So right out the gate in verse 1, we see emphasis on where Jacob is and what he's doing. The verb here is lived. He's lived or he's settled in the land of Canaan. Uh, This is in contrast to his father and his father's father who'd sojourned in the land. It's as though they were not fully there. And so this also contrasts with what we've read last week in chapter 36 where we followed the lineage and life of Esau. And they ultimately settled in Edom, which was outside the promise of God. So we have Esau outside the promise of God, and now we have Jacob inside the promise of God, settling in the promised land of Canaan, living there. So right out the gate in verse 1, we're seeing God's fulfillment of His promises to His people through the land. But... uh, And it's interesting for a few reasons uh, that Jacob settled, um, because as we remember, Jacob's name is the usurper, the supplanter, and he's living now in this land. Moreover, we see that the name Jacob is used in the first verse, whereas later on and in various contexts, we'll see the name Israel. So Jacob is the one that settled, not Israel here. Uh, Israel, again, if you remember, means striven or having wrestled with God. And I think we need to look at this and understand the distinctions here. Uh, In verse 2, I think God is showing us that Jacob has settled. The untransformed man has settled. And we'll see later on the transformation of God's people where it's not just Jacob being given the name Israel, but his entire family. The entire story of Genesis 37 through 50, as it's almost a subplot within the text, is not just showing us who Jacob was, but it's showing us who Israel is, the entire family of God, the nation of God being transformed. And I think that's why Moses goes back and forth throughout this text where we see Jacob 
and Israel used, and we want to pay attention to that. Uh, as we look at the text, we, can, we need to kind of remember what's happened in the previous passages. As I said, this is the story of God transforming His people. Just previously, we had two weeks ago, the defiling of Dinah, and then in last week, we had Reuben sleeping with his father's wife. And so, what we know about Israel as a family is that the sons of Jacob are wicked, they're evil, and they're in need of transformation and rescuing. And this rescuing is going to happen through the man God has chosen, Joseph. And that's where we see verse 2, Joseph entering the scene. As I mentioned, we've only seen him mentioned a couple times in the passage, and uh, where we see him now, he's 17. He's a boy. And, and that's not to offend anyone in the room that's 17 or younger. That's what the text says here. If you prefer the King James, calls him a lad. So he's a, a young lad. He was with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives and his stepbrothers. And the text doesn't say who or how many of his brothers were there, but we can assume that there's several of them helping him tend to the flock. Uh, and as I mentioned, this text has some interpretive uh, challenges as, as you study uh, and you look at the Hebrew. And, and one of them that jumps off the page uh, in verse 2 here is this word shepherding. Various translations, maybe yours, has the word with added to it. Jacob was shepherding with his brothers. But we can, we can make a strong argument from the Scriptures here that with ought not be added. And so the actual appropriate interpretation would be Jacob is shepherding his brothers. That he is literally overseeing his brothers. He's in charge at age 17. That adds to the story of Joseph where we see immediately he is the chosen one. He's the one that his brother has appointed. It's as though Joseph has received the birthright. He's the one that his father trusts. And we see this again as we go on to verse 3, because Joseph brings a bad report. Now, again, I mentioned there are interpretive challenges here. We can read this text, and we can say, well, Jacob is, Jacob is, Joseph is just a tattletale son going to tell on his brothers for doing evil. But I don't think that's what the Scripture is saying here. I think because Joseph is responsible and has authority in the text. I think Joseph is dutifully, responsibly reporting to his father the schemes of his brother. And it's a bit ironic here where Joseph brings this report to his father and he's dealing with his, the evilness of his brothers where by the end of the chapter, as Joseph brings a report to bring about righteousness, his brothers will be, bring about a report that leads to unrighteousness as they seemingly kill their brother and sell him into slavery. This sets the scene for who Joseph was in the family of Israel and who his brothers were. We have the righteous son and the unrighteous brothers. We have the righteous son bringing the righteous report, shepherding his brothers, and we have the unrighteous sons not shepherding their brother. So verse 3 shows us the ammunition for Joseph's brother's vehement hatred. They hate their brother. Israel, the text says, loved Joseph more than his brothers, and he demonstrated this by giving him a gift that no other son received. And we haven't even reached the dreams yet, 
And here, Jake, Jake, Joseph, keep going back and forth, Joseph is, is already ruling over his brothers. He's making bad reports about them. He is loved more by the Father, and now he has a special gift that none of them had. Now, I'll just go ahead and say that this is not an example of model parenting that we see by Jacob. And it would be easy for us to stop right here and say, well, here we have the text. We have the sermon. It's about the dysfunction of Jacob's family as a result of his favoritism, and it leads to Joseph's demise. Uh, If Jacob was a better father, Joseph was less of a pretentious brother, the brothers weren't so evil, if this whole family would just get their act together, we could move on to the book of Exodus. But I don't think that's what this text is about. Jacob... Israel and his sons, they need to be shown that they cannot save themselves. They need to be brought low to a point of grand humility that they might see the very hand of God directing their lives. You see, they need a picture of Christ portrayed through the suffering of Joseph. And so do you and I. In the entirety of the Bible, I think we'd be hard-pressed to find a man apart from Jesus that is more, is more pure, more blameless, and more upright than Joseph. Though we know Joseph is a sinner, there's no significant sin or shortcoming described anywhere in Scripture about him. Even in the first four verses, it's pretty astounding to consider the gospel parallels between who Joseph was and who Jesus was and what he did. I found various websites, one of which listed 60 parallels in Scripture between Joseph and Jesus. Now, maybe some of the examples are a bit extreme between these two parallels, but I found some that are really helpful and I want us to consider this morning. Beginning in verse 2, Joseph is described as a shepherd, where we know from John 10 that Jesus is the good shepherd. In verse 3, Joseph is the beloved son of his father, where we know Jesus is the beloved son of his father in whom he is well pleased. Joseph is hated by his brothers for the favor he's received, where Jesus is hated by all people in the world. And these parallels are just in the first four verses of the Joseph story. And we'll have over ten more chapters where we'll see these consistent parallels from Joseph going down into the pit, Jesus being buried in the tomb, Joseph being raised up over all of the nations of that modern day, Jesus ruling and reigning over the nations. And so as we study the life of Joseph over the next two months, we'd be wise to pay attention to see these parallels so that we might see our own need for Christ and that we might see the faithfulness and kindness of the Father to restore a people despite their sins. The first four verses have introduced us to Joseph, the love of Jacob, as well as the wickedness of his brothers. It's it's shown us uh, what God is doing, how he's working. But we have more to come. Let's pick up in verses 5 through 11 as we read the dreams that Joseph had. Beginning in verse 5, Then Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers. They hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. 
Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So as we've now established, the brothers hate the son, Joseph. He's received special favor, special gifts, and there is no peace between these brothers. We see, we see in verse 4, at the end of verse 4, it says they cannot speak peaceably to them. They cannot speak shalom, the common greeting of the day. They couldn't even speak to their brothers. It would be as though you and I say hello in a kind greeting. How are you? His brothers won't even speak to him. That's how much they hate him in the text. Doesn't seem like a wise time as the younger hated brother to go share these dreams. For all we know in Scripture, Joseph is a bright man. I think he clearly knew that he was hated by the brothers. I can't imagine being at this dinner table. It's as though Joseph would walk in to sit down at the table and his brothers would get up and leave. It's an awkward situation. And perhaps more awkward uh, is after the telling of the first dream is that Joseph goes on to tell a second dream that's even bolder than the first. First, the sheaves are bowing down to him. And in the second dream, it's not just the sheaves bowing down to his sheaf. Joseph literally says, you all will bow down to me. And he relates himself as a celestial being. All of creation is bowing down, in a sense, to Joseph in the second dream. And so the the question that has to be running through our minds at this point is, what was Joseph thinking? Why did he feel the need to tell these dreams? Maybe we give him a break on the first one, but why go and tell that second one? Why do you do it? Well, I want us to make an observation here. I think we need to see God's intentional choosing of Joseph as his man. It's easy to quickly look at this text and find ourselves agreeing with the brothers. I think we would be frustrated if we had a sibling tell us that we were going to bow down to them. It would be frustrating to have a brother like Joseph who receives favor from everyone. But we need to consider here that Joseph did not choose to be more loved by his father. That he did not go and ask for the extravagant garment that his father gave him. He was chosen. And as we approach these dreams, Joseph did not produce these dreams of his own will and volition. I don't think he read books about sheaves bowing down or celestial bodies bowing down before he went to bed at night. God, in His purpose, uniquely and intentionally working for His good and for, the, for His glory and for the good of His people through the life of Joseph, gave Joseph these dreams. And I think we're going to see the value and the importance of these dreams as we go on. We're going to see how these dreams were essential both to the encouragement, the life of Joseph, as well as how essential they are to the redemption of his brothers as they acknowledge what God has done and through Joseph. The brothers will ultimately receive the blessing of God through Joseph and and through these dreams, even though they're not the ones ruling over Egypt. And I think there's a principle here for you and I to see as we study the text. That when men and women around us are appointed or blessed in this world, 
That it's by the very will and sovereignty of God. That when we see the favor of God's, God on someone's life, that we are not to respond with jealousy as the brothers did here in verse 11. And we will see that Joseph had to go through, we'll see in the coming weeks what Joseph had to go through to be the man God had called him to be and to accomplish what God had called him to accomplish. You see, you and I don't know the full story in everyone's life and why maybe that person at work got the promotion and we didn't, or why that person on social media seems so popular and we're not. I want us to listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans where he gives us the posture we're to have at all times. He says in verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is the posture we are to have as God's people. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. This is the opposite of what we see in this Genesis story. So back to the question, why did Joseph feel the need to share these dreams? Well, I think we could quickly come to the conclusion that Joseph is either dumb or foolish, but I don't think that either is the case. We must remember that he is the great-grandson of Abraham, the grandson of Isaac, and his father is Jacob. These were all men that had significant encounters with God through dreams. The communication of these dreams is not the evidence of Joseph's foolishness. Rather, it's the evidence of Joseph's faith and God's faithfulness to the promise he had made to his forefathers. A great preacher, James Montgomery Boyce, put it this way, Joseph sensed a God-given responsibility to make a divine revelation such as this known. It's as though Joseph knew these dreams came from God, and he knew he must share them. These dreams were so incredible, so real, that Joseph had to tell his family. Not to do so would be irresponsible. So I don't think that Joseph telling his father the sins of his brothers, or Joseph telling these dreams are him trying to be the bratty 17-year-old son. I think we're seeing Joseph, the righteous man, wanting to honor God and his father. And it's interesting to consider here how Jacob responds to these dreams of Joseph. Notice he does two things. The first thing we see is that he rebukes Joseph. Why do you think, who do you think you are, son? Who are you that I and your mother and your brothers should bow down to you? This seems like an appropriate response to a father to a son. You're creating dissension in my family. Don't cause dissension. Who do you think you are? But that's not his only response. Notice at the end of verse 11, it's almost reminiscent to what we read in the birth story of Jesus in Luke 2, where it reads in Luke 2.19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. It's as though Jacob realizes when he hears these dreams that they're not just dreams that Joseph had unintentionally. They're not to be completely dismissed. He senses the work of God in the life of his son Joseph, but he's unsure how how these dreams might play out. And I think this uncertainty of Joseph's outcome is further muddied as we pick up in verse 2. Verse 12. Let's read verse 12 to the end here. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, 
Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to them, I will go. Then he said to them, Go now and see the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent them to the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. A man found him and behold, was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, Where are you looking, who, What are you looking for? He said, I am looking for my brothers. Please tell, them that they are past- tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have moved from here. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them again at Dothan. When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to him, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him. And throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is, that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, And they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with the camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Let us come and sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They brought Joseph into Egypt. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his sons many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my own son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the guard. Joseph is the brother, beginning in verse 12, that's left behind with his father. The other brothers have gone ahead to shepherd the flock at Shechem. Now, if you remember from a few weeks ago, Shechem is also the location where Simeon and Levi had killed the defilers of Dinah. That is to say, the sons of Jacob did not have the best reputation in this region. They wouldn't have been welcome to shepherd there. So, concerned for his sons, we see Jacob sends Joseph, the trusted son, to Shechem to check on his brothers in the flock. Now, this is a significant task from his father. 
Joseph was being asked to go 50 miles into a territory where the people despised his family to check on his brothers who also despised him. So for the kids in the room, this is a reminder not to complain the next time you're asked to take out the trash or wash the dishes. You're not being asked to go 50 miles into a hostile territory. Now I want you to see something here in this passage. Joseph is wandering around the fields of Shechem looking for his brothers. When a man comes up to him and not only takes the time to talk to him, but has already overheard his brother say exactly where they're going. This is not a coincidence. I think what we're seeing here is God's divine plan that Joseph would walk 50 miles to Shechem, that he would run into this exact man, and that this, this man would somehow have already overheard where they were going and what they were doing. Again, I think what we're seeing here is God working in the mundane of life, in Joseph's life, and it's a reminder that God is working in the mundane of our lives as well. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this truth in Acts 17.26 when he says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all of the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You see, God knows exactly where Joseph will go and what he will do, for he's determined both his life and his boundaries. He knows the persecution that awaits Joseph, both in prison, uh, in, the, in the pit he'll be thrown into. He knows everything about Joseph's life. And I think this needs to be an encouraging word for you and I. I think we can spend so much time worrying about when and where we will go and what will happen to us that we don't focus on who God is and what He's doing. Uh, as Paul graciously prayed for me, my wife and I are praying about what's next. I've recently uh, drafted a resume, put it on some websites, and I realized as I was studying this text that I can spend the next eight months until the Navy kicks me out thinking about where I'm going and what I'm doing. Worrying about, is, the, is this line just right in the resume? Or do I need to call this person? Or instead, I can look to God and trust Him. He knows where I will dwell. Church, our next season in life, individually and as a church, may be great. Or it may be very difficult, like the life of Joseph. It's not the boundary or the location for us that matters. It's the truth that God is always ruling and reigning and directing His people according to His purposes. For you and I, it really boils down to the question, do we trust that God is good and that He will sustain us, even if that sustenance is going to come through a hard season? Even when our journey will lead us to a pit, do we trust Him? Do we trust if our journey means waiting for months or years, like Joseph? Do we trust the boundaries that God has set for us that they will ultimately lead to our good and His glory when we trust Him? And it's hard to do, and it requires us seeking His help to believe that He is good and that the boundaries will lead to His glory. That's why He's given us this Word. So picking up in verse 18, the brothers see Joseph from afar. He would have been easy to pick out. He's in this brightly colored tunic. It's multicolored. He's hard to miss. The closer he gets, the more his brother's hearts burn with hatred and indignation. Dignation. They've become like Cain. Rather than mastering their sin, we're watching them fall into the same trap of their distant relative. Just like Cain, they're plotting to kill the favored brother. 
Their language is sharp and cutting. And the Hebrew here reveals a sarcasm where the literal translation is, here comes this master dreamer, this master of dreams. They're mocking him for his God-given divine revelation. Their plan is wicked and vile. They'll kill their brother and hide the evidence by leaving him in a pit and then lying to their father about the outcome. Notice here, one sin will cover up another. The lying will cover up the sin of throwing him into the pit. And in the heat of the moment, there's an unexpected turn of events here through the intervention of the eldest brother, Reuben. We have to remember about Reuben. Reuben is the one, again last week, that uh, in, the chap- in chapter 36, slept with his father's wife. Surprisingly, Reuben will be the one here that rescues his brother Joseph from death. He offers a proposition to the other brothers. Let's not shed blood here. And notice at the end of verse 22, it tells us Reuben's desire was to rescue him so that he could restore him to his father. This is quite interesting. We're beginning to see God working in the sons of Israel. We're beginning to see God use His people for good rather than evil. Now, maybe Reuben here is seeking uh, forgiveness and restoration from his sins from last week. But either way, the hand of God is working and intervening in the life of Joseph. Can you imagine what it must have been, what must have been going through the mind of Joseph as he's at the bottom of that dry pit, not sure if he's left to die, whether by wild animals, starvation? We're not sure. The only thing we do know is from Genesis 42:28:21, where it says that Joseph cried out for mercy. He begged, and they did not listen. It is before him that his brothers acknowledge, when his brothers are acknowledging their sin and guilt, he tells of his cries. But they ignored him. They left him there. Next we read that after doing this evil work, the brothers of Joseph sit down for rest and replenishment as they eat a meal. So while he's screaming for mercy, the brothers are eating a meal. And here Joseph is probably hungry and thirsty after this 60-mile journey of going from the land of Canaan to Shechem to finally finding his brother Dothan. He's thirsty, he's tired, he's alone and afraid. And here his brothers are enjoying fellowship and a meal. And it's interesting as we think about this particular moment to consider what Paul read from Genesis 50. That in a short time, the tables will turn. His brothers will take a long journey to Egypt. They will be the ones tired and hungry. And rather than pursuing unrighteousness for their lives, we see that Joseph will be the righteous ruler reigning in Egypt. He will provide for their brothers. And so as as the brothers are eating some Ishmaelites, so these are the descendants of Ishmael, the the son of Abraham and Hagar, they come with goods to carry to Egypt. In the Reuben, the defender of Joseph, is now gone. He's left the scene. We don't know where he's gone or where he's going. But we have another brother that steps up and weighs in on the life of Joseph. This is the brother, brother Judah, who we will follow closely in, in the weeks to come as God restores his life. And he falls into the line of Jesus. But in this instance, Judah does something wicked. He too does not want to shed his brother's blood. But he also sees an opportunity. He's an opportunist, a pragmatist. He says, let's not kill him. Well, let's not leave him in the pit. If we can, 
We, we might as well make some money off of them. And so as the Ishmaelites come, he offers to sell his brother into slavery. And again, it's interesting that Judah in this moment is the wicked one. And we'll see greater wickedness of Judah next week. You see, Judah will ultimately be the one to receive one of the greatest blessings from his father in the closing chapters. He will be in the very lineage of Christ. But for this moment, we can resonate with the words of Martin Luther where he said, O Judah, thou art not yet purified. God has a work yet to do in the life of Judah as he transforms the sons of Jacob into the people of Israel, those that strive with God. So for 20 shekels, Joseph is sold in a circumstance that assures his wicked brothers that they'll never see the coat, hear of his dreams, or be bothered by him again. Reuben, who had gone away, is deeply troubled when he returns. He finds no Joseph in an empty pit. His tears, he tears his clothes in anguish for the loss of his brother, and out of fear for having to be the eldest brother reporting to his father that the younger brother is gone. As one sin must cover up another, the brothers they craft a plan to hide the sin of selling through the sin of lying. And in the story, we uncover another certain truth of Scripture. Our sins will find us out. Though they've hidden their sin in this moment, it will come to light in the future. The coat that brought them great disdain is now brought to their father covered in blood. And it's interesting because Jacob the deceiver is now himself deceived by his sons, just like he had deceived his own father. The one who tricked Isaac with the killing of an, killing of an animal is himself tricked by the blood of a goat on his son's tunic. The beloved son of Jacob is presumed to have been slaughtered by wild animals, leaving the father deeply grieved. You see, the father loved his son. He refuses to be comforted for many days, and in the midst of all this, verse 36 shows us that the purposes of God are being accomplished as Joseph goes from slave traders to the house of Potiphar. What his brothers meant for evil, here God meant for good, so that many people should be kept alive. The story in life of Joseph is the salvation of God's people and the saving of the world. To remember that Joseph wasn't just used to save his brothers, but the entire world was in a famine. And Joseph was used for their preservation. The life of Joseph, as we follow its twists and turns, point us to our Savior. Just look what happened in the last 20 verses. Joseph is attacked, stripped, and left for dead like Jesus. He was sold for 20 shekels of silver where Jesus was sold for 30. The shedding of an animal and blood of the goat points to the certain suffering of Christ. The life of Joseph shows us how God goes to great lengths to save His people. In this case, He uses the man Joseph. But for you and I, there is one name given among men by which we might be saved. And that is the name of Jesus. Just as the brothers did not think they needed Joseph, you and, often think we can do, you and I often think we can do life on our own. Just as the brothers refused to accept that Joseph would rule and, rule and reign, you and I reject the rule and reign of the living God. 
just as his brothers threw him into a pit and sold him to be taken away, you and I can proverbially bury Christ and cast him away not to think of him or acknowledge that he is the one ultimately in charge. So much so that we need to remember that all things fall under Christ. The Bible clearly tells us that we will one day meet Jesus ruling and reigning. We will give an account just like the brothers had to. But we will be judged according to His righteousness and not the righteousness of Joseph. We will be judged on whether or not we have submitted to Him and trusted in Him. And if we have not, we will be found lacking. Church, friends, I pray that you and I will not be like the brothers of Joseph that rejected and despised the beloved Son, but that you will see the reign and rule of Christ as both apparent now and imminent in the days to come, and that we will look to Him, throw ourselves at Him, see the mercy that He offers. For unlike the brothers who were shown mercy and will be shown mercy in the chapters to come, when we stand before Christ, the appointed King, in all of His glory, and all of the heavenly host, if we have not submitted to Him, it will be too late. So what must we do? We must call upon Him while He is near. Plead with Him that He might show us mercy. For it is through and by the beloved Son of God alone that we find our salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the reminder that You are working in the lives of Your people for their salvation. And Lord, like Reuben was wicked in chapter 36 and Judah will be wicked in chapter 38, God, in Your kindness and in Your mercy, You preserve them. Lord, we have an example in Joseph of faithfulness and righteousness of a man that is submitted to You, desiring to serve You, to love You, to honor his father. Lord, would we be a people that are like Joseph as we look to the true Joseph, that is Christ, the one that you would send to save? Lord, would we look to him for our hope? Would we trust you in the mundane circumstances of life? Lord, whether we are in feast or famine, in a pit or over nations, God, would we trust in you? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.